Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 198, my guest is Caitlin Long, CEO and founder of Avanti Financial Services. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. If you're in the US, absolutely get your auto stacking on with Swan. It's so simple, even a no-coiner could do it. Step one, auto fund USD from your bank account. Two, auto stack Bitcoin. Three, auto withdraw to your cold storage. Swan does not charge withdrawal fees. They want you to follow Bitcoin best practices and hold your own keys. Swan crushes Coinbase's fees for recurring buys by up to 80% and beats Cash App's fees by up to 57%. Set and forget. Enjoy your life. Just swan and chill. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera to start auto stacking with swan today. Be sure to use my ref link, swanbitcoin.com slash levera, to get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with swan. This episode also presented to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin native financial services company empowering customers with unprecedented financial freedom and control. Have you set up multi-signature? Are you thinking about what's happening over this next few years? Well, Now's a great time to start improving your security. And the Unchained Capital team have now created the Vault Concierge onboarding package. So there's three different options. You can either, from ranging from 1,000 to 1,500, depending on if you want to get two hardware wallets, one hardware wallet, or you've already got the hardware wallets, that you select the package, the concierge team will walk you through the setup, provide guidance, build the vault, and then as part of that deal, you'll get $1,000 in the vault. So if you need a hand getting set up, go to the website, it's unchained-capital.com. And on that website, they've also got a range of other educational material, such as Parker Lewis's series, Gradually Then Suddenly. That's a great one to read or to send to your friends also. So that website again is unchained-capital.com. Next up is the Cypher Wheel by CypherSafe. If you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet, or if you have a seed, are you just keeping that on a piece of paper? Well, make sure you've got it backed up in a way that's fireproof and waterproof and it won't rust. And also you want to think about, is it going to be evident if somebody's tried to tamper with your backup? Look into the cipher wheel. It comes in a wheel shape. It masks the words of your seed. You get those tiles and you basically slide them in and you can get a padlock tamper evidence seal to make sure you know if it's been opened. So make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Orders are going out now. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for 10% off. All right, so with this interview with Caitlin, she's extremely knowledgeable about the financial services industry, and she also has a lot of knowledge about Austrian economics as well. And so we have a fascinating chat. I really enjoyed discussing with her about Bitcoin, banking, rehypothecation, and we also get into this idea of what are Austrian economists potentially missing? What additional money is being created out there in the shadow banking system. What about this concept of moneyness? And we also discuss Caitlin's IMF working paper and the recent OCC interpretive letter. Here is the interview. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Stefan, it's an honor to be on your show. I've, I've followed you for years and, and here we are. It's good to be good to connect. Yeah, it's glad. I'm glad we finally made it happen. I am very interested in the work that you've been doing. I, I think you've given some excellent presentations as well as offering some great commentary on Twitter. And I know you're doing a lot of interesting work in the industry. Um, so I'd love to just start with a little bit around, you know, why you got into Bitcoin. Well, it does uh, relate to the financial crisis, actually. I was at Morgan Stanley and uh, had had a you know classic economics education, hadn't really questioned anything. And then all of a sudden I started seeing things that just didn't make sense. And uh, that really got me going on a deep dive, uh, ultimately found the Austrian school. But I did a lot of reading of 
all the various schools of economic thought, um, modern monetary theory before it became hip, um, because I knew it was at the opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum. And, um, and then, and then, you know, the further end of the spectrum is, is the Austrians and there, then essentially everybody else is in between it, as, as I like to put it. Um, some may disagree with me on that, but, uh, but I read a lot about all of it to try to figure out what was really going on because I knew that the mainstream explanation didn't make sense. And I'd like to point to, one of the um, contradictions that really got me going was when Treasury Secretary Geithner made a comment on Charlie Rose's show that interest rates were too low going into the financial crisis, and that was definitely a cause of the financial crisis. And then not even you know a week later or so, he was interviewed arguing that the Fed should cut interest rates. So it, that logical inconsistency to me made me realize there was more to the story. And sure enough, yeah, and then you got into all this. So let's talk a little bit about what you see uh, Bitcoin, you know, fixing about uh, that financial system. Well, it's a very practical reality that we are essentially forced into owning IOUs in all of our financial assets. Many people don't realize that. Um, certainly, I think the the Austrian oriented folks would realize that vis-a-vis the dollars we deposit in a bank. But where most people wouldn't realize it is that's also true of the securities in our brokerage accounts. And it's a vestige of history. I don't think there's anything nefarious per se about the way the securities industry evolved. We just didn't have the ability to settle the volume of transactions on a gross basis without creating huge paperwork problems back when when Wall Street, uh, when stocks traded literally in paper and bonds, uh, you used to literally clip the coupon and take it down to the the bank for uh, to, to redeem a bond coupon. It used to be all done physically. And as as, techno- as as transaction volumes increased and then technology came onto the scene, it just wasn't capable of handling the volume of transactions. Storage was expensive. Processing power was expensive. And so it made sense to net transactions. So all the buys and sells of your IBM stock were netted within your broker and then your broker netted against other brokers. And so you just reduce the amount of transactions that needed to be processed. But what it also did was essentially copy the centralized structure of the banking system. The Fed, as you know, uh, came into effect in 1913 and um, the depository trust company is the equivalent or the analogy, rather, of, of the Fed. It's a central clearinghouse um, for the securities industry. And it does much of the same thing. And just like you've got in the banking industry, commercial banks, correspondent banks, and then your money center banks and, and, um, uh, and your primary dealers, in the securities industry, you've got that similar um, uh, layers of intermediaries as well, different layers of brokers, and then you've got your custodians, and then and then you've got uh, the depository trust company. So in each the banking and securities industry, you've got basically the same structure, uh, and they're both designed to help facilitate transaction processing. Now, probably in the last certainly 15 years, the technological constraints that made it make sense for those systems to, to evolve that way no longer have been constraints. So why haven't we actually uh, really fixed things? And the answer is, there are there are a lot of people who have an incentive not to fix things, and and, uh, <laughs> and and so you know the incumbents have have are earning you know rent 
uh, that they wouldn't be earning if the structure of the markets were different. And um, it's, you know, we've made some strides. When I came into the securities business in 1993, um, full-time in 94, uh, uh, stocks traded on a T plus five, trade date plus five days. Then it went to T plus three, and then just last year went to T plus two. We should be at T plus zero. There's no reason why we shouldn't have at least same day settlement of stock trades. And the reason that we're not is because, again, um, you know, with securities lending, there's just so much activity happening that you don't see behind the scenes in your brokerage account where your brokers and all the other intermediaries are making a lot of money off your assets. And uh, unless they explicitly agree to, they're not paying you for it. And so that's the sort of thing that that uh, creates an impediment to change. Right. And I, I want to touch a little bit on the payment latency part, or I guess settlement latency as well, because uh, I was reading one of your recent papers. Uh, it was actually an IMF paper. And you touch on this idea around contrasting between RTGS, real-time gross settlements, I believe, versus, say, delayed settlements. Could you elaborate a little bit on the differences there? Sure. Well, well, first of all, it's it's really an honor to be uh, invited to be published with Dr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, not the same name, well, same name as the uh, Indian Prime Minister, uh, but different person. Um, Dr. Singh is, in a, is a career staff economist at the IMF, um, and I've been following his work. He's the one who ha- who started writing in-depth reports about collateral rehypothecation and reuse um, around about the time of the financial crisis. So long before digital assets became, you know, on the radar screens of the mainstream, um, he and I were, I I was reading his work and we finally connected um, several years ago. And then our work has evolved to talking about digital assets because we're, we're talking about some of the same things. We certainly don't agree on everything, but um, you know, it's kind of, it's just fun to have been invited to um, co-publish on, on that. What an honor. Um, And it's, again, one of the things I, I said when, when I, went down this path of starting a bank, there are going to be some strange bedfellows. There's going to be some cognitive dissonance because when you're trying to build bridges between two financial systems, the purists in both sides are going to come after you. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, but uh, but that, that is a valuable bridge. We can, we can come back and talk about why it's a valuable bridge later. But to your point about payment latency, um, yes, in, in a perfect world, uh, I, I like to use the, the analogy of trading baseball cards as kids. Kids have it right that, uh, you know, when you're trading a baseball card, you both hold on to the baseball card and you let go at the same time. Um, and so you don't have settlement risk because you're both, the, the transaction settles, the, the, the buy settles at the same time as the sell. And the the problem is the adults screwed it up. <laughs> we haven't uh, we 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 went and put all these complex delays in settlements, and frankly, a lot of it is what we talked about in the very beginning, which is that there are layers of intermediaries, and each intermediary has to settle separately unless there's some sort of a shared infrastructure, aka a blockchain. Um, you can't settle the trade um, with multiple f- parties at the same time. And, um, and and so what happens is each intermediary has to settle in sequence. And this is one of the big reasons why we haven't been able to speed up settlement cycles to, uh, to a faster cycle, um, because so many different layers of intermediaries are settling. And until probably 10 years ago, maybe even as recently in some cases as five years ago, the payments were still batched. 
and so and they've and settled after after business hours. So you just really had um, inherently a sequential settlement process. That's that delayed net settlement process that I was referring to. Real time gross settlement is what's natural. There there really shouldn't be any delays in the payment system. You should be able to exchange your goods for money at the same time and not have unsettled transactions. But that's not the way the systems work. And we'll get there. Um, And when we get there, frankly, there are enormous efficiencies that will be unleashed. And that is what I think is one of the big powerful aspects of Bitcoin and and blockchain technology is just the efficiencies that will be unleashed in allowing for real-time gross settlement of payments. Um, But it's certainly not the way the traditional system is set up. And those two things are very, very different. They're antithetical to each other. You can't inject a real-time gross settlement payment method into a system where the whole thing is designed on delayed net settlement. And that's part of the reason why I think the, the, the crypto financial sector is, is expanding independent of the traditional financial sector. You've got to have connectivity in order for, for it to grow, right? Because people mostly get paid in dollars, mostly save in dollars in the US, of course, other fiat currencies elsewhere. So you've got to have those connection points in order for value to flow into in, and out of both systems. But, um, but they're, they're, they're fundamentally going to stay separate because the, the, the nature of the systems is so different. We might naively think, well, okay, the bank has X number of dollars on reserve. And I think the, the person on the street isn't really thinking deeply about, okay, am I operating in a full reserve system versus right. a fractional reserve system? They're just, you know, I've just got this many US dollars or this many Australian dollars in my bank account. That's that's the amount of money that I have. Um, but then I guess the people who don't see that, the, um, that we're actually operating in like a fractional system and that there's actually rehypothecation occurring. Could you outline a little bit around how that rehypothecation occurs? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying um, you're right. The, the average person on the street doesn't understand it, but the people who control the majority of flows in the payment world are actually businesses. It's the treasurers of businesses and CFOs of businesses. They control yeah. a lot more flow than than you know the hedge fund managers who are interviewed on CNBC, for example. But because they work for businesses, you just never see them on CNBC. But, uh, but they definitely understand this. And the reason they, uh, they understand this is because they've never been protected by deposit insurance. Deposit insurance is really meant to protect individual depositors, not, not you know, significant businesses. So if you're a midsize to large business, you've probably got more than $250,000 in the bank. And therefore, you, you have to do the work on understanding the counterparty credit risk of your bank. Um, But I think the nature of your question is more for the securities industry. And that's where I've found in the last few years talking about this, that the vast majority of even folks in the Austrian school who you would think would be sensitive to this hadn't thought about it before. And a lot of it is because the terminology is hard to understand. If you didn't independently read what rehypothecation was and you read that, if you bother to read the gigantic, you know, pages and pages of terms and conditions with your brokerage account, uh, you'll see the word rehypothecation there. You, you are consenting to rehypothecate your securities. All the brokers make you do that. Um, and uh, and, and uh, even if you have what's called a separate account, 
they're still going to rehypothecate your securities because they hold them in what's called an omnibus account where they pool everybody's everybody's securities, you know, out out of outside your view. And I can share examples of of the impact to you from that. But uh, I, I, you know, candidly, I think this is one of those things that if the SEC were truly uh, adhering to its consumer protection mandate, it would be all over this because that is not a consumer friendly way to handle this. If you ask the average person on the street, do you think your Apple shares should be lent by your securities custodian without your consent and without you earning any income from it? Of course, they're going to say no. Um, and, uh, and, and yet that's what the vast majority of us have agreed to without understanding it because that's what's in the fine print. It's not explained. There was an interesting court case in Wyoming, my native state, where we were working on the blockchain bills and the president of the Senate super sophisticated guy. Uh, he, he said, you know, there's a Supreme Court case in Wyoming that says rehypothecation is fraud. And, and I went, I looked at the Supreme Court case and sure enough, and that was a case of somebody rehypothecating an, an industrial diamond where he, he had pledged it as collateral for a loan and then turned around and pledged the same diamond as collateral for a separate loan without telling the second, without telling either bank. Um, the difference, I think, is that the securities industry would say it's not fraud because we've all we've all consented to this practice, whereas in that case there was no consent. But um, the problem is that does anybody really understand what that means? I think the vast majority of people do not. Uh, even smart people, they've just never taken the time to dig in and realize that's fractional reserve banking on your Apple shares. That is absolutely what happens every day. In the securities industry, and it's normal. Um, and 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 uh, without it, the structure of the, of the securities industry would be very different than it is today, because the profit uh, potential would be very different than it is today. But I don't think this is fair. I, you know, we don't have no no rehypothecation companies in the securities industry because of the way the regulations work. It just it's the way the industry works. And so, um, if you want to own your own securities, get the paper stock certificate. But good luck getting it because the SEC has done such a, uh, a, a big job trying to get it all electronified and put in these centralized structures uh, that 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 your broker will will not probably give you your paper stock certificate if you ask for it. Right. And maybe if we were to tease apart some of the reasons why this is occurring, in some cases, uh, as people talk about, it's, it's uh, that it may be being lent to somebody who wants to take out a short position. And in other cases, it's more like they need it because they they don't want it, to, it's just kind of the way it moves around in the system and they need somebody to be able to lend it to them in a short period of time, that kind of aspect? Well, yeah, it, it started out as securities lending is exactly what you were talking about is, as just um, lending the securities so that someone could borrow them and put on a short position. But it's moved well beyond that now. Uh, all the different demands of, um, of, of, um, for securities lending, they're, they're, they're ver varied. Um, the biggest one is this is the way the broker-dealers finance themselves. They don't have depositors like the big banks do for, for U.S. dollars. And so what they do is they actually pool all the customer securities and their own securities, and they'll just put them out for securities lending. So all the things that you've read about, 
collateralized loan obligations. That's just pooling and lending against loans. Collateralized debt obligations. That's pooling and lending against bonds. Um, and even the ETF world, how do you think you get the leverage in ETFs? It's, it's, it's basically all through this securities lending market. Um, so these markets are just gigantic. And they, they are exactly how the securities um, um, you know, industry works. With, without securities financing, which would include repo, margin lending, um, and, and, and the like, uh, there, there are a whole bunch of different products. But it's really all the same thing. It's secured lending using your securities as collateral or your, or your bonds or your loans as collateral. And you just put those up. Uh, it, it, these are typically one-day loans. So typically, they mature overnight. And then, uh, then the next morning, you just take out the loan again. But in the last, um, as, as I left the securities industry, there was a lot more, and that was in 2016, there was a lot more term repo happening now where, um, where you were actually having a, a match on, on the financing, the secured financing. Instead of it being overnight, you would, it, it would be seven day or sometimes it would be multi, multi-year. And, um, you know, of course, the banks didn't want to have to have all that overnight financing because we saw what happened to Lehman Brothers. It, um, it lost its overnight financing. As soon, and as soon as it was out of the overnight financing market, it was done. It couldn't find, fund itself anymore. So these, these games only work as long as the banks can continue to fund themselves. Um, but these things are enormous markets. Uh, and it is these, that is literally the beating heart of the securities market. Is, is They now call it securities financing. And uh, it's, ha- it's how the big banks finance themselves. Right. And it might also be fair to point out that were it not for some of these systems, the costs actually might be higher to the consumer. They might be paying a higher fee yes. to use an ETF service or something like that, because part of how that ETF service is making its cut is, say, uh, that uh, taking advantage of that, that time that time difference, right? 100%. And and I think the rise of passive investing, you know, the the um, index funds had a, had a lot to do with that. We've now we now see the the concept of a no fee mutual fund. Well, there, the, your your asset manager has costs. There's a lot of costs to running a mutual fund. So how how is it that they have a no fee fund? Where are they making their money? This is where they're making their money. They're taking your securities and they're turning around and lending them, and they're probably not giving you a cut. Um, and so as fee competition increased, especially with pass- the rise of passing and passive investing, this is what happened. Everybody essentially was forced into this, which is why it's so ubiquitous. This is the only way they make money. And this is, you know, now I, I think everybody's in a pickle with this because nobody realized that it was going to become the tail that wags the proverbial dog. I mean, you have ETFs that actually trade much greater volume than the underlying and so imagine, you know, how, how closely those ETFs actually track the underlying if, if the ETF volume is much greater than the underlying. They're not tracking it very closely. And so um, it, it's, it's a real problem. I think this, this has, um, has become a challenge. And I think it's also a challenge in the way the securities markets work. Um, we definitely, there were a number of people who were warning Greenspan in the 80s that you don't want to have the, the government financing happening through the securities industry. And indeed, Europe didn't go that way. Europe doesn't have that big of a bond market relative to the bank markets. The banks in Europe are much more dominant than the, than the bond market. 
Um, and in the U.S., we went with securities market. The bond market, you know, became dominant relative to the banks. And so that's when we saw the rise of shadow banking. And that's when things started to get really difficult from a monetary policy perspective. It, it used to be in the 70s that when the Fed injected new, new money in the monetary base, Within six months, you you pretty much knew what the money multiplier was, and you pretty much knew what, therefore, what the inflation rate was going to be. There was a direct causation between the Fed injecting new reserves into the system and CPI going up. But that's not the case anymore. Um, now we, we we actually see the opposite, <laughs> um, and and a lot of that has to do with the very different mechanism of credit creation that happened in the securities market. Um, I would say going it really goes back to 1983 which was during the Volcker Fed. You know, the Austrians tend to, um, of all the Fed governors, like him the best um, of all the Fed governors in recent years, uh, because he actually did, you know, shrink the money supply, raise interest rates, you know, try to, try to actually uh, put a halt on this, um, on, on the uh, unconstrained growth of money and credit. Uh, and he did succeed a little bit, but I actually think he made an enormous mistake. And it was in 1983, which was when instead of tar the Fed targeting the money supply, they decided to start targeting the price of borrowing money. You can, you can target one, but not both. You can either manage the supply, which is what they did in the 70s off going, after going off the gold standard in 71, or you can manage the price of money and let the supply float. Um, when they were managing the, the, the supply, the price floated. And, and of course, that's one of the reasons we got um, you know, interest rates at 21%. Uh, but, um, um, but in particular, in 1983, when, when the Volcker Fed allowed this switch, they never announced it. It was You had to go through the, the, the minutes of the FOMC meetings to, to find when they announced it. And of course, ever since 1983, to put a puzzle piece together for you, the Fed has been targeting what's called the Fed funds rate. And therefore, they just let the money supply float. But what that did was hand over the keys, the proverbial keys to the kingdom, to the financial industry to try to determine what the supply of money should be. If the Fed was only managing the price, then the supply was the floating variable. And the securities industry figured out a way to really increase the supply of money and credit through the shadow banking system without impacting the Fed funds rate. And I think that was a colossal mistake. And as history, as, as time goes on, uh, economists, I think, will look back on that and, and realize that that was as, almost as meaningful as, um, as letting go of the gold standard uh, in the post-war period, and then um, letting go of the gold exchange standard in 1971, letting go of the uh, of the money supply targeting standard in 1983 was also a very important um, inflection point in U.S. monetary history. That's some really fascinating comments there, Caitlin. And I'd love to touch a little bit on this idea of privately created money, right? So because in the Austrian framework, we're thinking, okay, the central bank has expanded the, you know, the money supply or has um, rather has permitted a certain amount of, um, by having a low reserve ratio, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, right? We're thinking, oh, okay, that just, that means the banks can lend out all this additional money. But I think the point that you're trying to get to there is also that it's not just central bank created money, it's privately created Absolutely. money. Yeah. And I, I think also um, Jeffrey Snyder has been very vocal on this topic as well, talking yeah. about the euro dollar system. Yes. So could you elaborate a little bit on what's, what's this privately created money that we're speaking about? 
Well, the privately created money comes from the private financial sector. So um, as we know, the, the, the Fed controls the monetary base, uh, and then the um, banking and securities industries create credit on top of that. Um, one thing is, you and I were chatting before we started the podcast, that I, I, I think uh, the Austrians would not have misunderstood this as much had Murray Rothbard still been alive, because I think he would have written a sequel to The Mystery of Banking, which is The Mystery of Shadow Banking. He would have been all over <laughs> the, um, the mechanisms through which credit, money and credit is created that doesn't have that, um, that impact on the, on the CPI rate that it, that it used to have. Um, and it, it basically created the illusion of some free lunch. And we've had a few decades of you know, free lunch where we've had massive expansion in money and credit in the private sector um, that, didn't sh- that didn't cause an increase in CPI. And a lot of the reason for that was the rise of the euro dollar, euro, euro dollar market. So you and I both follow Jeffrey Snyder. He's he's one of the smartest macro analysts out there, um, and he's he like Dr. Manmohan Singh at the IMF have have been all over this from coming at it from a slightly different perspective, which is that you know that we really shouldn't be watching the M's anymore, M zero, M one, M two, because the action is outside of the traditional banking sector. It's it's in it's in the shadow banking market and included in the shadow banking market is security. So all the rehypothecation that Dr. Singh is such an expert on, as well as the euro dollar market. Now the euro dollar market does have some overlap with, um, with, with the repo market, but what it is, is, is um, typically thought of as dollars issued offshore. Um, so these are issued by non-US banks. And this is another one of the mistakes as we look at monetary history and when you look at, the, at when when the Fed sort of really tr- truly gave the keys to the kingdom to the financial industry, right about 1983, that's when the securities market started to take off. But something else happened back then as well, which is that the euro dollar market started to take off, and we started to see a big increase in the volume of U.S. Treasury issuance, so the so to finance um, deficits, and it was all financed in the securities industry instead of the banking industry. But then we also saw. The, the the Fed allowed the non-U.S. banks to carry dollar balances and issue dollar balances. It used to be that only U.S. banks could issue dollar balances. And now, because of global trade increasing, they allowed non-U.S. banks to issue dollar balances as long as they had a correspondent relationship with a U.S. bank. So it all ultimately settles back to the Fed. But the problem, as you know, is that there's a velocity of the monetary base and the Fed doesn't doesn't measure, unless they're directly regulating and measuring the U.S. monetary base inside the traditional um, financial industry, this is the M0 to M2 multiplier, um, they don't know what the multiplier is in the euro dollar market because they don't have insight into it. There have been a number of people who have tried to estimate it. Um, but, but the other piece that, got, that complicated matters further is that other assets took on a so-called moneyness. Um, this is Doug Nolan's concept, and I really like that concept as well. That that the monetary base isn't the only base money in the financial system anymore. U.S. Treasuries are also base money in the financial system, and are, and, and and so this is one of the other reasons why. That those who are predicting a dollar collapse as the Fed increased its balance sheet, or those who were concerned to your question about the banks no longer having a reserve requirement, I'll come back come back to that in a moment. And it didn't show up as a dollar collapse or or as hyperinflation um, because the mechanism is so different. It turns out that the base money of the of the system is really at, at as much U.S. Treasuries and other effectively U.S. government guaranteed 
securities like uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae mortgage, uh, mortgage-backed securities, et cetera, all that paper is really viewed as fungible and is viewed as the same as U.S. dollar cash. And in fact, actually, just to bend your mind a little bit, in some markets, it's viewed as more valuable than U.S. dollar cash. Why? Because you can't rehypothecate cash. Only the banks can do that. That's called fractional reserve banking. But you can rehypothecate securities. And so this is where Dr. Singh's work at the IMF is so interesting. He's, he has estimated how many times a U.S. government bond, U.S. Treasuries included, has been reused. That's just the securities industry's equivalent of fractional reserve banking. And so you see why it, some people in the securities industry much prefer to have a U.S. Treasury than to have cash because they can multiply it, whereas with cash, only the banks um, can multiply it. So, um, yeah, I know this is a bit of a mind bender. We're going into some pretty esoteric stuff here. But I, what I'm trying to convey is that there is a lot of complexity here, and that helps explain why the traditional simple model of every time a dollar got injected of M0, it turned into $10 of M2. That just doesn't apply anymore. Um, and let me come back and, and answer the question about um, reserves, uh, bank reserves going to zero. There were a lot of people who were crying foul over that. Uh, and actually, it makes no difference because no one has been. No bank has been um, worried about their reserves since 2008. The, the banks have shifted, instead of regulating reserves, to regulating capital. And the capital buffers are what matter. The whole Basel III um, capital requirement and, and all the Dodd-Frank supplemental capital requirements, those are all based upon the capital of the bank, not the reserves of the bank, the equity capital of the bank. And, and so um, actually when, that, when the Fed relieved that, it didn't actually have an impact on, um, uh, on whether the banks would lever themselves up more. Um, and that was, again, one of these subtleties that if you were thinking in the, in the simplistic model of the 70s that once worked so well and applied so well, then you missed it um, based on what was happening today where the action is off, off field and it's frankly much, much greater and much um, much bigger concern, frankly, than uh, th than the way the old model used to work. I guess just to replay some of that. So you you were mentioning how essentially banks have not been constrained by the reserve requirement. Yep. They are actually being nowadays being in practice more. Uh, they are constrained by things like the Basel requirements, which yes. means they have to hold a certain amount of, let's say, uh, bonds or a certain. Uh, they have to hold a certain number of assets. In relation to the amount of loans that they have issued out, and I think there's there's kind of into the technical weeds, there's things like risk weighted assets and so on, exactly. and that that, yep. that sets the actual amount. Um, but I guess I suppose the the point is the kind of the initial naive understanding, if you will, of just simply rehypothecating above from M zero to M two and M three and so on. That's not the biggest factor anymore right. because of these other factors such as the euro dollar market the uh, and the this concept of moneyness as well i'd love to talk a little bit more about the moneyness idea so my understanding there is it's sort of like different assets in the financial world people have an incentive to try to sell them and push them to people as saying, yeah, look, this is actually even closer to money than you first thought because it gives them more of a 
more power in some sense, right? right. Because it, it, yeah, they're trying to say this is really, really good um, collateral. Like I'm good for it, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you saw that with the CDOs of, of 2008 and guess what? They're back. Um, I actually think that the ETFs are probably the, uh, modern, you know, equivalent of that, that you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to work until it fails spectacularly. And we're going to see that. I think we've seen it in a couple of times. There've been some ETF, uh, problems where, where they, the, um, the net asset value diverged drastically from the underlying. And it tends to happen in the, in the leveraged ones. Um, but again, the rise of um, passive investing has caused a lot, of, um, a lot more money to go into the, into the trackers than the actual assets themselves. And eventually, those two have to, ha- have to, uh, have to hold it. it uh, there's an old saying in, in the financial market, you can stay liquid longer than you can stay solvent. Um, and that's what can happen. Uh, that, that's what can happen with ETFs. They can, as long as people are continuing to trade them, it, it's just a game of musical chairs. Um, if if the ETF doesn't indeed have um, sufficient collateral, uh, and there are lots of li- different things. So um, I was talking earlier about all the securities financing. Um, there's there's the phrase oftentimes is naked shorting, um, where where ETF issuers read the fine print, go pick up the prospectus of your ETF. Market makers are allowed to create ETF units. And again, the way the lawyers phrase this, it doesn't make it obvious what it really is, but this is what it is. They're allowed to issue ETF more ETF units than they have collateral. Those particular market makers who are bestowed with the ability to go naked short that, that asset um, have the ability to earn extra rents um, because they're, they're, they're allowed to create more more assets than there is collateral to back it up. Doesn't this sound familiar? This is another, just another version of rehypothecation, of fractional reserve banking, where you don't have a hundred cents of collateral backing your obligations. And it's just another version of it. There are so many of those versions of it. Um, and and I, I should have added back on the on the size of the euro dollar market, as you know, because I know you've been following this, nobody knows how big that is. Um, you know, the, the amount of dollars that are borrowed offshore where, where the Fed doesn't directly regulate the banks, the amount of, of bonds issued in U.S. dollars by non-U.S. companies, and most especially the amount of payables in trade that are payable in U.S. dollars. Because think about it, you know, oil, Saudi Arabia sells oil to China in U.S. dollars. There's no U.S. party to that trade. But there are payables, which are effectively short-term U.S. dollar-denominated debt that get created there. No one knows how big those are because we just don't have a way to, to measure it. Um, and, and, and what that does, and this is really important as well, for those who are really worried about a dollar collapse, Raul Paul has been really good on this topic, that the gigantic U.S. dollar short that's been created, that, that really the Greenspan Fed is responsible for um, authorizing back in the 80s, um, that gigantic dollar short means that there is demand to buy the dollars at any price. Because when somebody needs those dollars, they have to get them in order not to default on their contract. And so there's, there is price insensitive, price inelastic demand for the U.S. dollar out there. And that has kept the U.S. dollar supported a lot longer than a lot of folks had thought. So be careful um, shorting the dollar. I, uh, you know, certainly we all look at this economic environment and say this is not sustainable. This is not real. 
we are way out living our, what, what, what we're consuming a lot more than we've produced. We've been doing that since 1968. In fact, that's the reason why um, the gold exchange standard was ended in 1971, because we were borrowing more than we were producing. Um, and so, uh, you know, this can't go on forever. And you know what? That's right. It can't. But be careful because the the short squeeze that's going to come in the U.S. dollar is going to be staggering. And um, here I, I, I would point to the book When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, talking about the short squeezes in the German uh, currency right before the hyperinflation um, uh, between World War um World War One and World War Two, uh, and and it, it just was staggering how the the volatility that happened and the magnitude of the short squeezes that occurred in um, in, in in Germany in, in the in the mark against the dollar. I'm sorry, not against the dollar, against against a French franc back then, um, as well as against gold and also against the stocks. You would see. Um, you know, five percent moves in the stock market, and then the ampl the amplitude of the moves of the currency against stocks, gold, and other currencies that were sounder went from ten from five percent to ten percent, and then to twenty percent, and then towards the end you'd see fifty percent intraday moves. And so we're not there yet in the U.S. dollar because we're not seeing that kind of volatility. We started to see five percent daily moves back in March. But the Fed was able to get, you know, to get this revved up again. There's still some balance sheet left that the U.S. has to support um, continued issuance of claims on U.S. dollar denominated assets, clearly, because it hasn't hit a wall yet. But at some point it will. We're, we're, we're living on borrowed time. And, and actually what we're really specifically living on is the equity capital that our grandparents and their parents and their parents bequeathed to us because we had a pristine balance sheet in this country until 1968. And we've been living off that accumulated equity ever since. That's how we've been financing, you know, writing, writing, the, writing the check, so to speak, to consume more than we've produced. We're coasting on fumes, hey? Um, I, I'm also interested to just chat about, from an Austrian perspective, uh, the term money substitutes. And I think yes. that is where uh, the Austrian masters might uh, speak of it in terms of, you know, the money substitute theoretically if it's if it's perfectly secure it's immediately convertible and it's a par value claim to standard money right that's kind of the idea right so i guess you know let's say that you know you're you're a banker and you've got a certain number of gold pieces in your vault and you've issued you know a certain number of paper tickets that are that are immediately convertible for that gold mm -hmm. um, i guess that's kind of the high level way of thinking about it just a quick i guess example but sure. in in your mind how does that change where are some of the pieces in the modern day financial system falling down from that would you say it's something like well okay they are meant to represent some kind of a money substitute for example like u.s treasuries mm -hmm. um yes of course but, yep. but they're just is it just that it falls down in not in not being immediately convertible or is it just kind of not par value or how would you think about that well a u.s treasury is really just a dollar that pays an interest rate um, you know, some would quibble with that and say, "Wait a minute, the Fed is a separate legal entity. It's you know owned by the banks um, legally. That's true. It's not owned by the U.S. government. Um, but it, but the market doesn't see a distinction. The market looks at them both as risk-free assets, and that's how they're both treated under the under the Basel III framework and the liquidity coverage ratio. Um, 
so, um, so yeah, that, that, that's the most obvious money substitute. Um, and like I said, in some markets, you've actually, the, the, the treasuries, because their securities can be, can be rehypothecated by a non-bank, the, they are actually more valuable than cash because a non-bank can't rehypothecate cash. Only a bank can create fractional reserves against cash. So, um, so that's part of it. And, and, and other U.S. government um, um, guaranteed or implicitly guaranteed, you know, the GSE paper, um, it, it also fits into that exact same category. Where I think it's, we're seeing something really interesting develop, though, is in stable coins because those are backed by U.S. government obligations, usually treasuries. And they're, they're meant to be backed one for one. And this is where the, the paper, the IMF paper with Dr. Singh is so interesting because he's an expert on collateral reuse. And one of the things that's, so, that's, so, that's, that, that's, that, that's challenging to central banks is that when you create collateral silos where the collateral is squirreled away and can't be reused, what you're really doing is freezing the ability of the big banks to rehypothecate or to fund themselves through, through rehypothecation, through fractional reserving on securities. And that is a major part of how monetary policy is affected these days. And so um, this, this is one of the reasons why the ECB wrote a very interesting paper about Facebook Libra and said this could become a $3 trillion de facto money market fund that isn't going to be rehypothecating collateral at the center of the European capital markets. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> it's true. And so you think about a collateral silo. What that does is it freezes the fractional reserve banking. You can't do it anymore because that's supposed to be backed one for one. And so that the, the whole stablecoin phenomenon is interesting. But if, if the Fed were still following M3, stablecoins would absolutely have to be in there. And I, I, I'm not sure how many folks really understand how much the stablecoin growth has 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 just flourished in the um, since the spring. Tether now has more than eleven billion outstanding, which doesn't sound like much, but its annualized on-chain volume is about five hundred billion. Well, that starts to become yeah, pretty interesting. But the off-chain volume that's reported by all the crypto exchanges who are crossing tethers off the chain, so it's not an on-chain fi- figure that we can verify. That annualized volume is north of 15 trillion. 15 trillion is a lot. That's that's enough to catch everybody's attention, right? So what's going on here? We actually have what is effectively a money substitute. It's being treated like that in capital markets, or well, at least in, in crypto markets. But increasingly, businesses are starting to use this because it is a superior US dollar equivalent settlement system. So in a way, it's almost like a, a new version of the euro dollar market, except it's outside of the banking market, is, 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 is cropping up. And what's interesting about it is it is siloing collateral. It is squirreling away these US treasuries, which, you know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but because the US government is issuing so many of these right now, but there's a shortage of them. And why is there a shortage of them? Because there's a gigantic short position in the offshore markets, the euro dollar markets, and and, uh, and and the banks need to get a hold of those in order to be able to satisfy their obligations. And so you start squirreling away the collateral, it, it, it causes problems. Um, I, I, I think there's an interesting opportunity for the Fed, though. You, you, at, at the time that Facebook Libra came out, about this time last year, President Trump was, was this is when he issued his infamous anti-Bitcoin tweets, and he told Facebook, go get a bank charter. And, and actually, I think this is one of the interesting ways that the Fed can pull all this back in. 
because they they don't have the ability to directly control um, those those collateral silos, and this is this is a real concern that central banks generally, not just the Fed, um, you know, if, if 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 collateral gets squirreled away and siloed, that's going to impact their ability to to um, effectuate monetary policy, and it's going to mean that their balance sheets are going to have to expand. And I will say the Austrians might get it wrong again if the balance sheets expand to offset a a falling multiplier in the repo market. Because now instead of four people having the same bond, um, and and so basically the base money got multiplied by four, now it's only three. Well, how are you going to offset that if you're affecting monetary policy? You're going to have to increase the monetary base. Ergo, the Fed's balance sheet is going to grow. Um, but the but the Austrians, I think, unless you understand that piece, you'll 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 miss you'll miss it by saying, oh, that's hyperinflationary. The Fed's printing money again. And it's not going to happen if what the Fed is doing is backfilling for a for a credit deflation in the private sector. So all this stuff, you really have to be careful um, monitoring it all. And and stable coins are absolutely part of this whole equation now. They have become material, and especially when and if Facebook Libra gets going, this is going to become uh, it's going to pose a real challenge to um, to central banks all around the world. Right, and I'm sure we'll hear the same stories about oh, see, Bitcoin prices being pumped up by a tether and so on. Right, I'm sure you've heard that story. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the exchanges are—they certainly don't have to comply with the. There, there are some good consumer regulations that that stock exchanges have to comply with um, that relate to you know getting the best price um, and best execution and not trading against your clients. Um, and, and uh, you know, those kind of practices that have been shut down in the securities exchanges have not been shut down in the crypto exchanges. So there's definitely manipulation going on in the crypto markets. So buyer beware. Yeah, look, I think this is an area where, truthfully, I don't understand it as well as you do. Um, but I, I suppose, as I understand it, um, it's also that we might, if you naively look at money supply on, say, the Fed's, you know, Fred, that uh, uh, charting site, you might be missing the full picture because yes, you're not seeing 100%. the euro dollar part. You're not seeing the moneyness aspect that you were talking about. Yep. And so the reality of it is we're just looking at one part of the picture and it's this kind of problem that very few people even understand. And as I listen to someone like Jeffrey Snyder, he says, look, it's it's not that he even knows the solution. It's just he's trying to figure out what's the problem and people don't even know what the problem is to begin with. Well, right, because you can't manage what you can't measure as uh, I think it was Deming who said that. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I'm sympathetic to the Austrian view that you shouldn't be measuring this stuff because you shouldn't be managing the economy. You should just let them let markets work. Um, but, uh, but if your, if your job is to manage something you're supposed to be measuring and you can't measure it, then how do you think you're going to be able to do your job? Um, and so that's the challenge that the FOMC has right now, uh, for sure. And I'm sure they understand it. They're, they're smart people. And, and generally speaking, I would also say they're good people. They are, they definitely don't agree with the Austrian view of the world. Um, although, you know, Judy Shelton might, um, I don't, I've met her a couple of times. I, I suspect a lot of folks in, in the, in this, uh, in your listener base have and have followed her as well. So she ends up, um, on the FOMC. It's, it's going to be interesting because she's got a very different worldview and, uh, and, 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 and I think the way she articulates it is, is also really effective because she depersonalizes the debate. And, uh, so it'll be interesting to see if she can get through Senate confirmation. 
bringing it back to the criticisms that an Austrian might have of the, you know, of the of fractional reserve banking, they might say something like, "Well, it's it's because more." claims have been issued to money than the actual money existing yep. that's what drives the malinvestment or rather it drives this kind of false well yeah it drives a false signal of interest rates and of you know to entrepreneurs to go out there and borrow and do projects and what that does is creates the malinvestment and that creates the the boom bust cycle so i guess that's kind of the high level way of thinking about it but i guess it's just that it, it, it's sort of understanding where the melon or where that additional money is coming from is the part that not everyone is really understanding yet. Would that, would that be kind of a good summary? Yes, um, the, that is exactly what the Austrians have missed because they they didn't um, or we uh, collectively didn't articulate um, very well that the traditional banking system is not where the action is. It's in the shadow banking system, and there hasn't been much Austrian scholarship, um, even in the academic Austrian world related to to this. And so I feel badly for for the Austrians. I've actually donated a lot of money to uh, try to get um, to, you know, to sponsor folks who would study these things um, and, and help educate on, on these things within the Austrian um, academic world, because I do think they have a lot to contribute. And, um, and I do think that the Austrians are painted with the wrong brush by the mainstream because the results haven't been right. There were a lot of people who were claiming the dollar would collapse the moment that the Fed, um, or that, that, that Nixon took us off the gold standard, and it didn't happen. And then 2008, hyperinflation around the corner, and it didn't happen. And so the, the Austrians are painted with a brush of, of um, you know, wrong all the time. And they're going to be wrong until they're 100% right, <laughs> um, is, is how I think about it. And, and, and in, in figuring out... And we, you know, we don't know where that endpoint is, um, but in figuring out the mechanisms by which this system was was um, was allowed to perpetuate as long as it has, that's where that's where I think there's a, a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and you know, that that dollar short that that's out there is going to perpetuate the, the dollar for a lot longer than any anybody realizes. This could it could be not even during our lifetimes um, where we see a regime change. I think. It will be during our lifetimes because eventually the borrowed borrowed time, the borrowed literally the you know grandparents' equity that um, gave us the ability to write checks and and cash them um, to outlive our means, that eventually is going to run out. Um, but I just don't know when, and it's very 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 hard to measure. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question very well on that, but uh, yeah, I, I ultimately um, the the other piece that I would that I would say it, when when you described the Austrian business cycle theory which to me is, is what's so powerful about the Austrian world, is it's actually even simpler um, than the description that you gave. It, it's, it's basically that we shouldn't control the most important price in the economy, which is the price of borrowing money. That the price of borrowing money is the interest rate, and it is, um, it is, it is the traffic cop between time and between industries. And that's how capital gets allocated. And as long as we have a controlled price of borrowing money, then we will have misallocation of capital. And um, I, I also like the way the Austrians lay it out that the other piece that, that, that the mainstream can't explain is why there are clusters of errors. Why is it that entire industries make the same misjudgment in their capital planning at the same time and in the same direction? 
there is no other explanation for that. Markets always have buyers and sellers. Free markets do. So why is it that we have these clusters of errors? And the only explanation for that is that the interest rate was manipulated and you don't know whether the capital that you invested was going to earn a return higher than your cost of capital because you don't know what your cost of capital is. And as an entrepreneur, that's a daunting concept. If you don't know what your cost of capital is, then you don't know how to allocate it. And you don't, you don't know if you're, if you're earning a return on it or if you're destroying value. And the, the word malinvestment, put another way, is destroying value. You're earning a return less than your cost of capital. That's a project you never should have invested in. But because of the bad interest rate signals telling you to invest, you did and you lost money because of it. And this is why you saw the entire home builder sector in 2008 lose money at the same time in the same direction. Um, and, and I would say that the energy industry is, is, is the, sort of the poster child of this correction. Um, massive overinvestment, massive malinvestment um, in the shale uh, boom um, and, and, uh, and, and related um, energy projects that, that relied on gas prices being too high. But they had a cheap, cheap cost of funding because interest rates were held artificially low and a whole lot of money got, uh, got invested in a sector where it otherwise clearly in retrospect should not have been. And so here we are, we've, 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 you know, burned some of our capital and, um, and as a result, we're all poorer for it. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a great explanation. Uh, so if we were to think about what might be, uh, you know, what kind of monetary world we might live under if we lived under, let's say, a Bitcoin standard, and there were to be more cl something closer to a full reserve banking system, I suppose part of the reason why is people today don't acknowledge that. But, but I think a, a really interesting point you were touching on earlier, and I'd love to chat a little bit about this, is how corporate treasurers are actually conceiving of that credit risk more, much more so yes. than an individual depositor, right? So I guess and let me just play just for yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Right. I don't and mean I to suppose, talk over you, sorry. No, no, that's totally fine. I, I just wanted to give a quick explanation. So I guess the way an Austrian might explain it or think of it just for listeners who aren't as familiar, you might be thinking, well, as a retail individual, you normally would scrutinize your bank. You would say, hey, yes. is this bank legitimate? Sure. Are they really going to be good for the money when I want it? Um, but it's sort of like the government allays that fear by saying, hey, we'll put in the FDIC or an equivalent in other countries saying, look, you, are, you will be made whole. You don't have to worry. And so then they now just kind of put their hands up and say, well, I'll just put my money into any bank that has an FDIC, blah, 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 right? But I think the interesting point you were making is that corporate treasurers get no such assurance from the government. Right. Because they're all well in excess of the, of the, um, of the insured limit. And it's not just in the U.S. There's similar FDIC type insurance in other countries. And um, I'm not an expert in all of those other countries, but in most of them, my understanding is that there's a cap. And so if you're a big business who's managing you know, tens of millions or hundreds or, or even billions, tens of billions of cash, right? Um, then, then you're you're obviously, you know, the two hundred fifty thousand dollar FDIC insurance cap isn't meaningful to these tech companies and healthcare companies that are sitting on all these on all this cash. They absolutely have to pay a lot of attention. And and I watched it, you know, in, and there's a lot going on in the in the capital markets behind the scenes um, that never gets talked about in 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 the press because corporate treasurers aren't talking about any of this. But one of the things that happened in the two thousand eleven two thousand twelve timeframe. 
um, was when um, the, the, the euro started to fall out of bed and, and folks were, were really concerned that the euro might not survive. It was before Draghi came in and, and, um, and uh, basically gave his uh, whatever it takes um, speech. And uh, in probably the six to nine months before all that happened, um, you saw corporates, U.S. corporates, I saw, pu- pulling their cash deposits out of their European banks and um, putting them in U.S. money market funds or U.S. banks and swapping back to euros. So what did that do? Economically, they still had euro exposure because they couldn't take the accounting volatility. They didn't want to bring it back to dollars. But that meant that their credit exposure was not to the European banks. It was to the U.S. banks or to U.S. money market funds. Um, And they just um, got the euro accounting benefit by swapping it back. So yeah, I've seen that very behavior a number of times. Um, There was also another example. uh, Right after the financial crisis, the large corporates um, had a benefit of unlimited FDIC insurance. And that was extended into, I think, maybe even 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, and, uh, and so for those few years, corporates could actually have unlimited FDIC insurance. What effectively the U.S. government did was guarantee the banks um, at that point because it, it offered unlimited FDIC insurance. And the FDIC is guaranteed by the U.S. Treasury. So the, FD, the FDIC, if you look at its balance sheet, is really small. It really could not handle a run on the whole U.S. system. So what that really is is a U.S. government guarantee. Um, and, uh, and, and they ended up taking that off in like 2011 or 2012, once things got back to more normal. But I remember at the time, um, there was just billions of dollars of corporate stash, corporate money stashed in those non-interest bearing 100% FDIC insured accounts at U S banks. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the announcement was made with maybe six months notice or so that that was going to be discontinued and all the treasurers then had to move their money into other other types of accounts. But that just goes to show you back then, everybody was really worried about the creditworthiness of the system and the creditworthiness of their banks. And so they were willing to take no interest on their cash just to know that their cash wasn't going to be defaulted upon. Yeah, right. And as you were, as we we're coming back to, it also reminds me again of that idea of the moneyness idea. So US treasuries are obviously closer to money than you know physical cash and coins, let's say. But in, in that example where the corporate treasurers were swapping uh, uh, via foreign currency swaps, um, but you, you were mentioning that they were holding balances inside money market funds. So yes. that is also arguably a form of, of quote-unquote, moneyness. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, and, and those have had their their string of problems too, right? Because it used to be that they were allowed to report that their value was $1. And then you started to see the reserve asset fund was, I think, the first money market fund in 2008 that so-called broke the buck. It was no longer worth $1. But it was always reported um, up until that point that, mo- that money market funds were always worth a dollar. It's kind of like stable coins. I just see the same you know, trends repeating. Stable coins are supposed to be worth a dollar, but are they really backed 100% by, by quote unquote risk-free assets, right? We saw in Tether's case, they weren't. And yet um, mar- the market, frankly, looked through a lot of that and didn't seem to care um, during that time period. Um, but you can see a pretty meaningful divergence. They don't always trade at a dollar. And so one of the problems with stablecoins is that um, they are probably capital assets for tax purposes. I'm big disclaimer. I'm not giving tax advice. I'm repeating what I've read. Um, 
uh, talk to your tax advisor if you have a question. Um, and the same thing is true on the accounting side. They're not considered a cash equivalent because they're not issued by a bank. Um, and so again, fair warning, go get an accounting opinion from an accountant. Um, but th they suffer from some of the drawbacks of, of being volatile assets. Um, so you, you've still got to do the tax reporting. Um, um, again, big disclaimer. Um, uh, but you know, if Tether's trading at 1.01, um, that one penny is actually a capital gain. And because there's no exclusion um, on capital gains, then um, you have to report that one penny. And it doesn't add up to much in, in terms of value, potentially, unless you trade a lot, but um, it creates a huge tax reporting headache. And so, again, the IRS hasn't totally clarified all this. Um, and the same thing on the accounting side, you're marking it to market. It's not a big mark to market, but um, it, we, we had that same issue with money market funds. Are they actually... Um, uh, are they treated as cash equivalents for tax purposes and for accounting purposes? And it turns out that some of them are and some of them aren't. And indeed, I think that's what's going to happen with stable coins. Um, some will be treated as cash equivalent and some will not, but it remains to be seen. But you can see that this is a whole new category of dollar equivalent um, assets, and uh, they're making their way into capital markets. They're making their way in as collateral and what they what they really are, which is most likely securities. Right, I see. Yeah, so it's it's a it's kind of this funny blurred line between being a security versus trying to be a money or be considered on that money spectrum, and. I'm also curious to get your thoughts. So people might be thinking, well, as Bitcoin grows up and becomes bigger, there is this increasing financialization. And speaking to a point you were mentioning earlier around the tail wagging the dog. So I guess a quick example, let's say someday a Bitcoin ETF comes and it would, do you perceive that that could be a risk there in terms of the tail wagging the dog where let's say the ETF has been so much more subscribed or so many more people are buying or selling that ETF than people who can actually deal in the underlying real Bitcoin. Do you have any views on that? Oh, it's already happening, Stefan. And and, and this is, you know, 100% a problem. I, I wrote a lot about this um, back um, uh, two years ago uh, on Forbes.com, a series of pieces on on the bad type of financialization. There's good type of financialization, which is real, true liquidity coming in from a new group of investors. And then there's the bad type of financialization, which is where it gets fractionally reserved. And we are absolutely seeing fractional reserving of Bitcoin happening, full stop. And it is suppressing the price of Bitcoin, full stop, just like rehypothecation and other fractional reserving tools suppress the price and, frankly, the interest rates um, in the dollar. Um, that is absolutely the case. And, um, and, and so it's going to create, you know, an unwind at some point, but I, I, as much as I'm concerned about rehypothecation and, um, all the fractional reserving that is happening, the bad type of financialization that is happening in Bitcoin, I'm not worried about Bitcoin itself. Just to be clear, oftentimes I get that question is, is, is this, does this mean it's bad for Bitcoin? No, it just suppresses the price in the short term. And it means that when the unwind comes, it's going to be spectacular. <laughs> and so, you, want, <laughs> you know, you want to be long. Um, you know, if somebody wants to suppress the price in the short term and, and let me buy more, I'm happy. I'm happy with that as a, as a long-term hodler. But, um, but, but I think it's a dynamic that we can't escape. 
And um, I, I will say I respect the companies that are at least outright acknowledging that they're doing it. BlockFi, Celsius, um, and, 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 and others. I don't mean to single them out because there are others as well. But I do know that the two of them have admitted this is the case. It's in, it's in their terms and, con- and terms and conditions. And it's outright there. It's this, they're operating the same way that your brokerage firms do. It's, it's in the fine print. They have the ability to rehypothecate your collateral. And um, the interesting thing about those companies is they're not regulated and they're not audited and there's no visibility into their balance sheets. So it, it's an interesting question. Um, what's the counterparty risk of those counterparties? And does the market have any idea how to price it? We'll only know in retrospect. Yep. Yeah, I see. All right. Um, also wanted to chat about the OCC interpretive letter 1170. It's cryptocurrency custody for customers. So I'm sure you'll have some views on this. So, uh, Caitlin, perhaps you just want to summarize a little bit. What are they getting at in this interpretive letter? Well, it is allowing national banks to provide custody services around digital assets. It's a, it's a clarification of the type of assets that national banks can provide custody services for. Uh, and so it's not a change in the law. They didn't need to go to Congress to get a, a get to get a change in the law. They had the um, the uh, the authority to issue the interpretive letter. Um, it's not a change in the rule either. It doesn't have to go through any public comment period. So in the U.S., uh, we've got laws, rules, and then interpretations of those rules. Um, so three different layers. What an agency can do it, it, without having to go get public comment or change the law is release an interpretive letter. Um, In the SEC, they're typically called no action letters. And in the OCC, they're called interpretive letters. They do have the force of, 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 uh, I guess I'm mixing terms here when I say force of law, Um, but they they absolutely are effective. Um, And they typically are not reversed. Uh, And so, you know, this was a big deal. Um, When I saw some of the announcements that Brian Brooks had, uh, early on, that they were, they were going to create a national fintech charter, a national special sorry, a national special purpose bank charter, which was exactly what Wyoming has authorized. Um, I knew that that wasn't real. They, he was going to need to go to Congress to get that changed. But this interpretive letter, he didn't have to go to Congress, and he didn't have to do a new rulemaking process with a you know public comment period and getting it published in the Federal Register. This is effective immediately. So he he did a he did a. A big favor to the institutional adoption of crypto, and I think from from the everybody's perspective, the real impact of this, alongside the blog post that Visa released on the same day, endorsing Bitcoin and stablecoins as powerful payment technologies, all this means that the big incumbents are here, and this narrative that's been persistent, persistently wrong, but persistent. Uh, that the U.S. government was going to shut down Bitcoin somehow. Uh, you and I know that wasn't possible. That ship sailed a long time ago, but the narrative was still there. I think at this point, anytime anybody raises that narrative with you, you just pshaw, you just laugh. I mean, it's at this point with the big banks and Visa getting in and endorsing this, you know, that ship sailed. It's good for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, I suppose up until... This interpretive letter, it, it remained a little bit unclear what normal banks could do, correct? Oh, yes. Um, no bank was going to try to provide custody services without getting express approval from the regulators. That is something you, 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 you pretty much do need as a bank to go get permission from. You, you have an open dialogue with your regulators and 
heaven forbid, if you're doing something they don't know about, um, it's going to be a problem for you when they find it out. So uh, this is one of those situations where clearly some national bank went and applied to, to do this. And um, as a result, now all national banks can do this. Um, there's one other interesting aspect of it, though, that's a bit challenging, which is that the smaller banks will need to go through a full regulatory review before they can do this, the smaller national banks, the gigantic ones, the JP Morgans, the Citigroups, the UBSs, the banks, Bank of Americas, it, their digital asset activities are probably not going to be deemed material in size and therefore they would not rise to the level of affecting the safety and soundness of the bank. Therefore, they can be in digital assets as of, the, as of July 22nd, literally. Um, and it's unfortunate because those who are concerned about the power of the big banks, this is one of the one of the ways that the rules work in their favor is that if they want to do something new and it's not material relative to their overall business, they can do it immediately when they get an interpretive an interpretive letter like this. Right. So what sort of services could we see banks offer in terms of cryptocurrency? I mean, are we talking um, safe custody uh, vaults to people can hold their hardware wallets in it? Or are we talking more like they might literally start just offering, uh, you know, Bitcoin accounts alongside other kinds of accounts? Who knows? Uh, all of the above, those those would both be considered custody businesses, safekeeping of, of assets. Um, so yeah, uh, who knows? Uh, there is going to have to be some degree of back and forth with the um, supervisor of whoever this bank is uh, that wants to get into Bitcoin. They they are they are probably you know not literally waiting in immediately, but um, for a big bank to put in a request for an interpretive letter like this and make their regulators you know jump. They wouldn't do it if they weren't serious. Um, having started three businesses inside new banks and inside these big banks previously, I know what it takes to get that done. It's a very heavy lift, and for a for a bank to ask its regulator for approval to do something, they have their ducks in a row before they even ask the regulator. Um, so you know they've got a plan, whoever this is, and um, uh, it, it's yeah, they're they're coming. Um, and it's going to be interesting because I think it's going to shake up the existing crypto industry. And generally speaking, I, I think it's good for the venture capital firms because I, my guess is that there will be a land grab, there will be an M&A wave. And this might make some of your listeners cringe, but I, I think a lot of the native crypto companies are going to end up owned by banks before this is over, owned by traditional banks. But um, uh, 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 the, other, the, other, the other side of this is that um, the crypto companies could go get a bank license and... I shared this with Anthony Pompliano on, on his podcast as well. Um, we, we, this industry definitely tends to, to be critical of banks, and I think it's more for monetary policy reasons than, than other reasons. I, think, I don't think the banks would disappear even if fractional reserve banking went away. We would just go back to a money warehouse service provider type of you know, fee-based service provider relationship. That will always be there. And, um, and, and so um, uh, the, the, here's the punchline that I think is important for everyone to carry away from this part of our conversation, the banks have licenses that enable them to do certain things that non-banks cannot do. And so putting a bank wrapper around a crypto business makes a lot of sense. And so this, the notion of just a broad brush, you know, 
um, anti-bank uh, approach to the world is not actually the right way for this industry to be thinking about things. It's the particular particularities of the way the banks have uh, uh, banks business has evolved the traditional banks that I think we can be criti- critical of and I am critical of. But the um, but the bank license itself and actually working with with um, the bank regulators, which are by the way an entirely separate part of the Fed than the FOMC, um, those those are different and um, should not be painted with that same broad brush. I think even if James Grant's view of the world, which is you know, privatize the Fed, um, even if that were ever to happen, what what the Fed would effectively become, the vast majority of of employees at the Fed work in the bank supervision division, and that would essentially become a, a self regulatory organization. Um, so it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't disappear. I see. Um, so let's chat a little bit about Avanti. What's what's the latest there? Well, uh, we're applying for a bank license. This this is a wrapper around uh, traditional business. We're, we're very Bitcoin focused. If you look at, our, at who our tech team is, um, and and we want to to build a compliant bridge between the traditional banking industry and the uh, digital asset world. Um, we are going to be very different than a traditional crypto company. Uh, most of the traditional crypto companies are, are what I would call sell side focused. Um, you know, they they collect fees for listing someone's cryptocurrency. Um, we won't do that at Avanti. We we are buy side focused. We are customer focused, and so we'll go where customers want us to go. And right now, um, the, the, no question, the biggest level of interest from a digital asset perspective, is in Bitcoin. So I'll, I'll be working to get new institutional investors into Bitcoin. I know a lot of your listeners are purists and think, why on earth do we need any service providers, any intermediaries in crypto? And you know what? You're 100% right. Um, if you don't want to have an intermediary involved in your crypto transactions, Godspeed, you don't have to. And that's one of the beauties of, of Bitcoin. It's, it is about personal financial freedom. Um, it is a bearer asset if you're willing to take that uh, take that responsibility. But for those who choose not to, or for those institutional investors that cannot, by law, self custody their assets, they need a third party custodian. And until there is one that's deemed institutional quality, they won't come in. And so, um, you know, again, a lot of folks think the pension funds and mutual funds and the like. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to Bitcoin. And, and in the long run, it doesn't matter to Bitcoin whether they come in or not. But it's certainly going to be good for the ecosystem if they do. These are, these are not the big, bad institutional investors. These are, these are the cream of the crop. And frankly, I think they'll help clean up when they come in. They'll help clean up some of the bad practices that are happening, like all the front running that's happening at the exchanges, um, um, like the bad terms and conditions uh, in 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 uh, in in the contracts, go read the terms and conditions of your uh, of your crypto service providers, and um, some of the things in there will make you scratch your head. Uh, they are not consumer friendly, and you know one of two things causes it causes the financial industry to be consumer friendly: either they're forced into it by their customers, which hasn't happened in this industry yet, um, or they're forced into it by regulators. And I, you know, that I think that's coming. I think there's definitely going to be some crackdown. There, there already has been at the CFTC some crackdown on some of the, some of the consumer unfriendly behavior. Um, but one example that I'm alluding to here is there's one major institutional player that defines Bitcoin, quote unquote, as a digital asset. Well, if all of a sudden that that firm decided that it was in their interest to call Bitcoin Cash Bitcoin, there is nothing that you would be able to do about it. Because 
they have defined that term so broadly that you wouldn't have any a legal remedy. If you sued them and said, no, Bitcoin Cash isn't Bitcoin, Bitcoin is Bitcoin, they're going to, the judge is going to say, well, then you should have negotiated a better contract. Um, so the, the, the power is with the existing intermediaries in this space. They haven't been pushed to real institutional quality terms yet. And I think that that's coming and that's going to be good for consumers. That's fascinating stuff. I really enjoyed chatting with you, Caitlin. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a good time to uh, close it off here. But uh, before we let you go, Caitlin, where can listeners find you online? Well, Twitter is probably where I'm most active. Um, LinkedIn as well. uh, And caitlin-long.com. And then, of course, Avanti Bank. We'll be making some more announcements in the coming months and uh, uh, hopefully getting over the finish line and getting ready to open up uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Stefan. That was great fun. Find the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 198. And remember, if you want to get in touch with me, my Twitter DMs are open, or you can email me at stefanlevera at pm.me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.